Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. As regular listeners might know, I'm always fascinated to see where people are listening to the show throughout the world. And I'm always curious about why certain locations seem to be very invested in learning about cult dynamics and systems of control. In some cases, there are obvious historical or sociological reasons why our show might be more popular in certain areas. The societal ramifications of the Holocaust, for example, likely factor into why we have so many listeners in Germany and in Israel. While the spread of Nazi occupation throughout Eastern Europe may explain our popularity in places like Poland and the Czech Republic. What is fascinating in its own right is when we see huge spikes in listenership in way less populated communities. I've mentioned before that we have a strong listenership in Eagle Mountain, Utah, a suburban community infamous for its large population of Mormon polygamists. There are many other examples of places where we have a high listenership that either have a history of cultic influence or are suddenly inundated with followers of a dangerous group. A particularly fascinating example of this phenomenon is our listenership in Vanuatu, a small group of islands in Oceania, where we have had over 2,000 downloads in the past couple of years. This is an extremely remote and isolated location with a culture that still has remnants of the John from Cargo cult. For those unfamiliar with the concept of a cargo cult, which is actually a fairly antiquated term, it is essentially a belief system in which a group of people in an isolated indigenous society imitate the behaviors, rituals, and symbols associated with technologically advanced societies particularly those characterized by transportation and material wealth, in the apparent hope of attracting similar benefits. It's a fascinating subject that we hope to cover in a bonus episode soon for our Patreon subscribers. But it's just so gratifying to know that the work we do on the show has become a resource in such a remote place. I hope that you, the listener, and especially our supporters on Patreon can also gain some satisfaction in knowing that you too play a key role in our ability to continue providing a crucial and free resource for people all around the world. So if you'd like to be a part of keeping this resource available to the people all around the world who need it most, please consider making a contribution to the show by becoming a member at patreon.com indoctrination. For as little as $5 a month, you can create a positive impact on a worldwide scale. Another especially important and free way to help other people find the show is to leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's a quick and easy thing to do, but it makes a huge difference in the visibility of the show. So thanks again to all of our generous supporters around the world. And feel free to reach out to us from wherever you listen. We always love to hear from you. Today on the show, we have Beth McNamara. Beth is a Los Angeles-based television and documentary producer with over 25 years of experience in content development and production of more than 100 hours of entertainment. 
garnering her two Emmy nominations. Beth co-produced the 2018 Sundance documentary feature Inventing Tomorrow, which won multiple awards, including a 2019 Peabody. Currently, Beth is the creator and executive producer of the multi-season investigative podcast Murder at Ryan's Run, which does a 50-year deep dive into the Philadelphia-based group known as MOVE, M-O-V-E. The indie podcast features exclusive insider sources that expose MOVE to be a destructive and deceptive cult that controlled, abused, and terrorized them. And in addition to working on a book about MOVE, Beth is also developing other stories as documentary films, podcast series, television series, and movies. You can find more info about Beth and her podcast at www.murderatryansrun.com. Here's Beth now. I am so excited to have Beth McNamara with me today. I love that we get to talk and you get to share your story, the story, I guess, for the first time. Is that right? Technically, this is my first interview. I gave a short interview to the Philadelphia Inquirer two years ago, but it was only just to sort of round out their story that was focused on the survivors. Great. So if you can introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are, what you do, and also what brought you into being interested in the topic for today. My name is Beth McNamara. I am a TV and documentary producer who got into podcasting sort of as a creative cross-training exercise and really loved it because there was no barrier to distribution, learning a new skill, and was looking at different stories I could tell that way. Somebody brought me a story they thought I should tell. It was about the MOVE organization in Philadelphia and the bombing in 1985, which I was unaware of. And I said, I don't know. What's the MOVE organization? I've never heard of this event. I started doing research I had a lot of questions and that was over four years ago. And, you know, questions led to more questions, led to a story that was buried within the sort of deepest corners of MOVE and asking people about that particular story, which was an unsolved murder. It started opening other doors. It was essentially like the back basement window entrance to a story that was right there all along, but people were just taking the easy front door access. I never went looking for a cult story. I was aware of cults. I've known people who were in cults. I totally could have been a person who was recruited or manipulated into a cult. I just wasn't at the right place at the right, or the wrong place at the wrong time. That's what makes me different in this is that I didn't go in with a preconceived notion. I didn't have the answer to the equation. I was writing the equation to try and find the answer. Okay, so some stories grab a hold of us and uh, it can seem uh, unlikely at the time, uh, but that it stays with you and you have trouble sleeping and you need to know more. 
And I'm wondering what it is about this that got under your skin to this degree where now you're really wanting people to know about this story. It was the first question I really had, which was, you know, here's this tragic event. It's known as the move bombing. It's the biggest fire in Philadelphia history. 11 people died. It's this confrontation between move and Philadelphia police. And it had been sort of boiled down to a very simplistic headline. Basically, white white police department, you know, aggressively attacks black radical organization that's a communal family in their own home. And, you know, this is a, a government bombing. 11 victims, six adults, five children. And my first question was, wait, why were there kids in the house? And the person who brought me to the story had been very empathetic to the MOVE organization, which when you hear the story to begin with, you're like, that is horrible. People dying. There's a big fire. Where's the responsibility here? What happened? What are the details? And I said, you know, if this is a long drawn out confrontation and there's weeks before this of conflict, why are there kids in the house? And the answer was, well, they're communal. And I said, okay, again, why are there kids in the house? And then when I realized those kids that died were not with their parents, I said, why are those kids in this house with adults that aren't their parents? They're communal. Their parents are in prison. And I said, okay, if their parents are in prison, there's paperwork that goes with those kids. Where's the paperwork? Were those kids legally allowed to be in the custody of those adults? And that one thing that I would not let go of is what unmasked everything. Because the children in MOVE are treated inside of MOVE as if they're adults and they're portrayed to the public as children who have been, you know, victims of the system, but they were victims within the cult. And I basically to myself said, I'm going to figure out every single child in that organization and where they are and what happened to them. And I made a spreadsheet. Wow. Okay. So before we get to the spreadsheet, I want to say that there are many people who were going through horrific things in a house, on a compound or wherever else. But typically, if it's just in a house, they were wondering why no one came to check, why no one seemed suspicious, why the neighbors walked right by. And they and people who I've worked with were hoping I mean, they would be nervous about people coming to their door because they were made to feel scared of the world outside if this was a cultic system. But they're also wondering why people didn't inquire, why they weren't curious, why they weren't worried, why no one asked. And here you are, not having um, really anything to gain by doing this. You, you know, these aren't your family members. Um, there wouldn't be a reason per se for you to be diving in in this way, but that you needed to be able to see these children, not just as these children who perished or whatever the situation were put in danger, but as human beings who have a story, who had rights who should have been protected. And so each of them can get to matter, which is a huge thing. It's a huge gift to be able to give to them. 
So let's talk about this spreadsheet. What kind of details did you want to find out or did you find out about them? You know, as I learned, because I didn't go in to this knowing all of the terminology of and or the checklist of a cult. And I didn't use the terminology or the checklist in the podcast either because the children didn't know the language. And so it was about telling their experience and their story and then looking at the documentation and the history of the organization. So the children that came forward to the podcast when we launched, which were they were adults at the time, were talking about their experiences, most of them after 1985. Now, they had been siloed and kept under the belief system of what happened to those children, but they didn't know a lot because they weren't allowed to read newspapers. They weren't allowed to ask questions. They were afraid to even doubt the belief system because, you know, the constant sort of big brother-esque of it all. So when they would tell me something about their abuse, I would then look to see if there was any prior evidence. And so some I had before they came to me, but some I had no idea matched up. And what I realized about the MOVE organization in particular, because I haven't studied any other cults, is that they're pretty consistent. Their playbook is very consistent. And over the decades, they do the same thing. So one thing that's really important is one of the, more than one of the children said to me, why didn't anyone intervene? Why didn't anybody try and help us? And I said to them, people did try and help you. You just didn't know about it. Because the people who tried to help you, they either couldn't get anywhere, they were threatened, or it was, they didn't have the power to do it. But then the people who did have the power to do it it ends up being a confrontation. So every time, you know, the reports of child abuse and neglect started in 1975 in the first location. And the documentation is there in the temple archives. So as somebody who is a storyteller and you go look for your research, the other projects that have come out from about MOVE, both before my podcast and after, had access to the same information. So my question to them is, did you not see that? I think they are responsible to answer that. Right. And so what do you think is the reason that that got overlooked or ignored completely? Because it didn't fit the simplistic narrative of move as the victim of the system. And they would try and explain it away. Uh, move is a back to nature group. Okay, but you can be back to nature and not be subjecting children to winter conditions and they're naked. You can be back to nature and not be subjecting children to forcible malnutrition and say that it's because you only eat raw, but then the adults eat cooked food. You can say you're back to nature and allow children to learn how to read. You could say you're back to nature and allow children autonomy over their own bodies and not force them to get pregnant at 12. You can be back to nature and not threaten people because they dare to say, you know what, I would prefer you not have 60 dogs and rats and vermin and you know yell on a loudspeaker 24 hours a day. 
Yes, all of that is true. And, you know, something I talk about on the podcast is this idea of both and, right? That things don't have to be so either or, but I know that people are worried about watering down a message, about seeming um, unsupportive of communities, et cetera, and people's trials in life and the difficulty. And I do think that there are reasons that there have been groups throughout history that are a collection of people of similar thinking or similar backgrounds or similar race, whatever it is, because they haven't been able to find their place in the world outside in a way that feels as safe or that gives them the same opportunities. All of that is true and doesn't have to change uh, in your sensitivity and your awareness about that while you're still noticing what's real, what's right in front of you, which is, as you're saying, the neglect and the abuse, the endangerment, all of it. And so I think in a global sense, you can understand the need for connection and empowerment, et cetera. And yes, there's still no excuse for fill in the blank hundreds of things that, you know, you uncovered that should have been uncovered decades before. Well, and I think, you know, not everybody has access to a newspapers.com account. I think everybody should because local reporting is everything. Now, local reporting is everything, but also needs to be checked by you. And so the reason the project's taken so long is that I've read every article ever written, every book, every dissertation. I've watched every video. I've read every website page. I've read every social media post, FYI. And I will continue to because you have to verify. And that's where I found a lot of my sources is through the local reporting. And I wanted to talk to them myself and I was able to track down a lot of them. And an organization that makes this much noise means there's a lot of people that interacted with them. And those people would have their portion of the story, but maybe it was a day, maybe it was a month, maybe it was a year, and then they no longer were involved. So they didn't know exactly what was going on. It was the same with the members. They would be in for a certain amount of time and then they were out or they were in and then they were, they were no longer alive. And so it really was, I needed to get people's, their, what happened to them and their story and put it in the puzzle. And I didn't necessarily have the next piece. And so I just kept building out. And, you know, the puzzle is huge. And the people who did try and help, they just knew a little tiny bit or they did what they could. Um, and there were many attempts to remove children from the MOVE organization, both in Philadelphia, in Richmond, Osage Avenue. And I believe it would have happened again, you know, in 2002. But at a certain point, and this is my opinion, the authorities, whenever they looked at MOVE, it was just easier to pacify them with a hands-off approach. And you could then say, well, if that's how they want to raise their children, I don't really want to get into another May 13th with them. And they would come to that conclusion because MOVE would say, do you want to get into another May 13th with us? Very deliberately. And so decades of children were raised in this bubble in the middle of a city. And they were all put under the name Africa 
and the media goes along with that. So then how does anybody do the math? How do you figure out who belongs to who? How do you figure out how old that pregnant girl is? How do you figure out how many children are supposed to be in school? And whenever they would be asked, and you know, I asked them myself, well, how many members are there? Oh, we don't answer that for security reasons. And I was like, red flag. Who's married to who? Oh, we don't answer that. Red flag. So in putting the story together, because they are a very public group, I did it as an investigation. Who is that? Who are they matched with? Who has information on, how old are they? When were they born? Where have I seen them before? And it became this crazy cross-reference, red string craziness. And that's how we started building the list. Okay, what an undertaking. So I think when a group, yes, is withholding information that should be accessible, should be public, or at least that they should feel comfortable having it be public, then yes, those are a lot of red flags. I think also, you know, part of, as you're starting to talk about this, part of what I want people to hear is not only that you were just like you're saying, sort of peeling the onion, that you were seeing a group as it was revealing itself in its true form. And it took a lot of doing to get there. But you're also seeing how the whole neighborhood can have something happening under its nose and not know about it. And how people turn a blind eye and the media won't get into one part of the story that's probably the more important part of the story because they're worried about how they're going to come across, etc. That so many people are kind of watching their own backs. I think that then they don't jump in and and help out. It's also hard to want to do that if the group is threatening in some way. And I know that the group has a history of that and can and that's also going to dissuade people from wanting to be involved because it means taking a risk. And so there's some people who will say, fine, I am willing to do this even though it means potentially taking a risk because someone needs to, because those families or those children are relying on the fact that some people are going to care enough to go through or sort of walk through their own fear to uncover what is true. But I wonder how much this group being threatening has gotten in the way of truth revealing itself. There's actually a spectrum on why the truth hasn't been revealed. There's a lot of people in Philadelphia who are like, yeah, I I know that about MOVE. I've been around all these decades. I know they're an organization that, you know, has allegations of abuse. I know that they're threatening. I know that they like confrontation. And then they're like, I've heard it. I don't need to hear it. Then there's people who come to the story and they are enamored that like they might be the one who can tell this story because it hasn't been heard. And I always thought like, how come I don't know about it? And I think that there are people who came to the story, started looking into it and then said, oh no, nope, like not worth it. And I will tell you that after 1985, very particularly, there was a lot of, you know, attention from Hollywood and that Steven Spielberg was going to make a movie about the child who escaped the move house on Osage Avenue and that he decided not to do it. And the reason he possibly decided not to do it is because of a letter that I have in my possession. And it was a letter from the adult MOVE member who escaped on May 13th, 
from prison to Steven Spielberg and basically saying, I'm sorry, you haven't consulted us. If you're going to make a movie about the MOVE organization without consulting us, you should be aware of our secret organization called M1. We're not threatening you, but we're just letting you know. So I think some people, it's not just, it's not worth it. Other people want to use the MOVE is victimized by the system for their own narratives or agenda to fit into a compartment. And then other people are are scared. Many sources did not want to go on the record, wouldn't call me back, wanted their identities, you know, concealed. And I, I understood. And I had, whenever I would call somebody, I'd say, look, just so you know, like, this is my transparency. This is where I'm coming from. You know, if you don't want to speak, it's fine. And they also, a lot of people were worried that I was undercover move, that I was an operative from move, trying to get information. And then in telling the story, it's like, you know, when I went into it and I found this unsolved murder and it was about a a member who had had a child in the organization and left and then wanted to get his child out. And it started into this custody battle and then he ends up murdered. That was originally, that's why the podcast is called Murder at Ryan's Run. That was what we were doing. And then when I'm contacted by a child born into the organization who I was aware of, I had seen photos of, I had hoped to speak to, but had no hope that I was ever going to penetrate to the inner core, contacted me and said, I want to tell you everything and I'm going to escape. And I'd like you to release at least some audio of me as a cover so that if something happens to me, like something will less likely happen to me if it's publicized. And, you know, right up until that moment, you know, I had to have conversations with my husband about what I'm about to do here. And we're having conversations about Move's history of, and this is documented, of going after people and saying they're pedophiles and trying to ruin them, trying to get them fired, you know, calling the police on them, showing up at their house, surveillance, you know, threats, flyers in people's neighborhoods, which is, you know, pre pre-social media, which means it could have been way easier to just me to my husband or say that we were abusing our kids. But as soon as the kids came forward and the one in particular who was leaving with her five children, my husband said, you know what? We, you have to do it. Like, we'll deal with it. Like, you have to do it. And we did. You know, that's two years ago. And it was scary. I was scared for them. I was in that mode when I hit publish that, okay, now if you come for them, you come for me. And it was just very, very mama bear. I mean, I have two children of my own, but they did come for them a little bit, you know, either through operatives or direct. There was like one direct thread and some social media posts. And my approach was just to face it head on. Like if anybody threatens anybody on this podcast, like we will turn it around and expose it. And if you want to do this on social media, where are you getting this information from? And, you know, who are you? And and that shut it right down. Incredible. I can only imagine that conversation with your husband and and that, you know, at some point for you both to say, basically, my conscience 
won't let me not do this or my conscience dictates that I'm going to say to my wife, okay, this feels like it would be wrong not to. You know, I mean, some people just get to that point that it would feel wrong not to. I think also what you've been able to do by talking to people a little bit later on in their lives who were raised in it, you have this, the benefit of seeing what happens, the after effects, the long-term impact or short-term impact that a lot of people don't get to see. They might see the people who are rescued in that moment who are shell-shocked and, you know, but we don't know what happened to them later on. When you talk just about the children all living in this house, you you can tell that, you know, conditions were going to be dicey with just with so many people in a space in general. But also knowing from what I know about this group and others that there wasn't medical care and psychological care and anything dental. Uh, so you could have kids who had different issues uh, that were not being attended to and different illnesses and different needs on top of the fact that these were not their parents. And so what I've seen in my practice is that so many kids who have been torn from their family unit within cults because it's supposed to be communal, I think because the leader doesn't want anyone to be more attached to anyone else than to them. So it's totally selfishly led. I think it does impact attachment later on and and parent-child relationships. You almost have to figure out what that's supposed to look like when you have children of your own because you didn't have it when you were growing up. And so I would love for you to be able to talk more about this group, but also some of the impact that you saw that these people were grappling with? Well, I think, you know, I want to point out that when people talk about the children who died on May 13th, 1985, and I've tried to speak about this without, it's it's very difficult in audio only to talk about that event in particular because there's hundreds of people involved. There's details by the minute. There's very few photographs of certain areas and obviously the people inside the house perished. Um, the only child who survived died at 41 in a drowning accident. The only adult who survived is still in the MOVE organization, which is the MOVE cult, and refuses to answer direct questions about that day. So those children were not babies. They were between the ages of almost 10 and almost 15. And I think that's very significant because that is an age group that can clearly tell what is going on if asked. And those children, according to multiple sources of mine, had escaped the house prior to May 13th, tried to get away, and they were caught and brought back. Those children had also been abducted from Virginia. They had been removed by Richmond police on charges of neglect, had been returned while the case was being appealed, and they had been abducted back to Philadelphia, 14 of them, and six of them ended up in that house. And the abduction charges, the abduction case, was never figured into the May 13th, 1985 investigation. At that point, when you're on the cover of national newspapers as you know, this horrific fire with this small group and people not really understanding the mentality of a group like that. 
it's political nightmare, regardless of what where you are ideologically. And MOVE was not cooperative and they were having a difficult time even identifying the remains of those children. So I have a lot to say about that, which I have not yet said. And the children have been referred to as revolutionary soldiers, revolutionary martyrs for the cause. And they were children. They could never have consented to be there. They had been legally abducted across state lines. And I've thought a lot about them as individual children and not just as these names. And so those children, obviously, if they had lived, could have provided a lot of information. The children who were not in that house, who were in the MOVE organization at that time, that's also a really important thing to talk about because why weren't they in that house? Which means there was a selection process. So the ones who weren't in the house, who did survive, who did endure decades of abuse, they haven't been evaluated in a complete way. Some of them have, you know, um, and they had been told, to, you know, doctors are scary, medicine is scary, all you need is garlic, all you need is roots, all you need is to believe in John Africa. You know, the kids who were in the organization in the early 70s, and then when they were actually um, taken out in 1980 in Richmond, they all had been identified as having a condition that you only see in famine-ridden countries. It's called kwashiorkor. And it is if you are extremely protein deficient and there's like a whole list of identifiers. Now, children in famine countries with kwashiorkor are usually in refugee camps. So you wouldn't actually be able to track what the long-term effects of that are. But these children did have that condition. Now, some of them perished in 85, some of them didn't. So I don't know, I think there definitely is a discussion to be had about these children being evaluated completely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, just to to jump in for a moment, I think when you have kids who are all diagnosed with something that was preventable, then you wonder why they weren't provided just even with their the basic needs when there was the potential to be able to provide them with those things. It wasn't like they needed some sort of strange enzyme in their body. Something was different in some way. They're just a regular human being who needed what all human beings need, and it still wasn't provided. So yes, you wonder about the long-term impact of those things. Same thing with some of the people I work with who were in groups probably not unlike this, where they were made to sit through lectures for hours and hours and hours. And right, and when they were young, they weren't allowed to sleep. They would get punished for falling asleep after sitting somewhere for seven, eight hours and listening. So they have a cumulative lack of proper restful periods that their body can go through. And it's when you're resting, that's when your body grows and develops and heals itself. And then you can also have more control over your emotions when you're well slept. And that just isn't afforded to kids in cults. And so what is the long-term impact of that? I mean, it, it, this does all need to be studied and added to the list of things to be able to hold the cult accountable for in terms of the neglect the medical malpractice of cults. And, you know, so that's the the physiological 
effects. And obviously there's psychological. I've done so many interviews where they're recounting an event or a story and it's really horrific. And they'll just sort of say it matter of factly. Like, oh, well, they said, you know, that person wasn't doing their work. And so they were just going to, they'll dig a hole and put them in the backyard. Like just very matter of fact, like they'll just kill you. And then in other instances, they would be telling a story. I would ask for more detailed questions to understand. And they would pause and they would have like, they would call them black spots where they couldn't remember that. and. They were always the stories that were the most dark. You know, where did you sleep in the basement? I don't know. I'm like, did you have a bed? No, I don't know where we slept. You know, and this is where I was like, I am not a therapist, you know, like this. I am not a therapist. And how do I provide services? Like, how do I... How do I do that without overstepping? You know, what can I connect them? Who can I connect them to? Does their therapist that they have even understand? Have they shared their background with their primary care or their therapist? And so the podcast ended up being almost like a, a guidebook in a way. So it wasn't just for people who are interested in the story, but the people who had been in the cults at one point and left or had to sort of distance themselves, particularly the children, I ended up making episodes to give them more information and that they could hear it on their own and they could process it for themselves. And then they could reach out to me for questions. It was also for people who had previously supported the cult and thought it was one thing and had been completely flipped upside down in hearing about the abuse trying to give them also more details. It was also for the media. It was also for authorities. It was also for anybody looking into um, investigating the organization overall. I wanted it to be a resource for everybody. to, And so I was always making episodes for with like five different groups in mind. Wow. And it happened so fast because... Originally, it was going to be about, you know, the the murder of John Gilbride and, and people coming forward for the first time talking about what the MOVE organization actually did to him and his family prior to his murder. That is separate and apart whether he ended up murdered. You know, the stalking, the surveillance, crossing state lines to harass his family, death threats, you know, him being in the group itself, how he got in. And... And then when it turned into the escape and people coming forward and people feeling like people encouraging other people to come forward, people feeling safe, like, okay, she made it with her five kids. I'm going to come forward. I'm ready to talk. And so the podcast was happening in real time. And so I was having to decide what episode was next based on what people were ready to hear, who really needed to speak because they were like, well, I'm going... I need you to put out my episode now because I need it to be public because I'm returning to Philadelphia. And this way, I'm, I I feel like it's all out there and I, I know who has my back and who doesn't. And so it was like a just this crazy 14 weeks of like, boom, 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 episode, 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 episode. And as I was getting to the end and it was really sort of culminating in 
and intersecting in the the children, their stories, what they knew about John Gilbride, what they had been told, you know, very, very crucial investigative information about that could help solve the case of John Gilbride's murder. It got to the end and I, we were, I was realized I was so on edge and I was listening to audio and I was checking a piece of information with one of the sources and I just broke down crying. I could not stop crying, like bawling. And I was like, oh my God, I think I, I think I need a break. I think we all need a break. And so we took a break publicly, but behind the scenes kept going and information kept coming, kept coming. And when I did the spreadsheet and I looked for every possible resource, like old footage, old newspaper photographs, anywhere, I just look, 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 like who's that kid? Where did they go? Are they alive? You know, were they brought to Richmond? What name were they being used as? We know, who is this? Because Move had would purposely give them multiple names. They would dress them in and clothes in, in when they would take them out in, in public, they would put them in you know, gendered clothing so that you couldn't identify who they were. They all had hair the same. Many of the children, they never called their parents mom and dad, so they didn't necessarily know who their mom and dad was. And there was a child that I that had had died and I was told she had a sister. I said, I'm going to figure this out. And that was the most recent episode I put out about this child that was born raised and move, left and moved by the parents and disappeared. And, you know, has, I've been told, you know, died in the cult because of the cult. And that was two years of investigation on just that child. And I put that episode out and I thought, oh, they're going to just go nuts, either denying it or like this could be, this could this could really be it. And nothing. Didn't even acknowledge it. You know, when you spend two years or any stretch of time trying to decipher someone's story, finding out about them, thinking about them, and then you notice the life that they had, you know, the from my perspective, looking at you doing that, I feel like you showed that child more love and respect and care than they got in real life. I am very, very emotional about the kids. I wish I could go back and be the person I am now when they were children and know what I know now, because I would have been just as big of a pain in the ass. And it's like, it's, I'm not, I'm not special. Anybody can, can see something wrong and decide to do what they can do. And all I could do was put this podcast out. You know, nobody funded it. I wasn't going to make any money off of it. That wasn't, it just became something bigger than that. And all along the way, I was like, okay, well, put out this episode, you know, Pixie's escaping with her kids. All I hope for is she gets the destination, right? It just was those sort of like day-by-day milestones. And now the podcast, you know, it sits there and the cult continues, but people are trying to put their lives together, get GEDs have relationships, think about what they want to do, have therapy. They're in therapy if they can actually get it. And I've had people reach out to me privately, like, oh, I was involved. I supported the organization or you're blowing my mind or I lived on that street and I've been waiting for someone to tell this story or I don't understand. 
you know, how does this work? How do how does your reporting reconcile with what the cult is currently saying and why are they not addressing it? And I take every single message and I respond extensively in communications and have had phone calls with people because that's meaningful to me is that I don't need to reach 5 million people who kind of get it. I'd rather reach, you know, 25 who are like, wow, I, I, I get it. I see it. I see the pattern. And where else is the pattern? And with the kids, it's just like, I want them to be happy. I don't, I want them to go make their own choices. They don't have to take up a battle against the cult. They don't have to become, you know, like do the circuit, like the press circuit. It's just like, there was a lot for them to leave and get out. And the cult doesn't make it easy. They want it to be hard for you. Just like any domestic abuser wants it to be difficult for you. You know, no money, no support. Do you have a place to live? Do you have an education? Is anyone going to understand where you're coming from? What's going to happen when you're in a situation and your trauma is triggered? How are you going to explain that? Do you have the language? And so, you know, it became not any individual person became the main character of the story. It really was chapters. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point about how, you know, people don't need to go on the circuit. They, they, I mean, part of what you hope for people who have been involved in the cultic system is that there aren't going to be a lot of have to's uh, after they leave that they get to choose and they get to feel free to heal in the way that is best for them, safest for them, whatever decisions they make are their own. But I know that sometimes there can be different factions among the people who have left and they can kind of fight with each other because a lot of them are also used to fighting with each other. Like, you know, cults are often contentious places and there's a hierarchy and there's competition and that's just built into the system. So sometimes I see it a lot with people who have left cults and they fight each other and who's doing it the right way and who cares about the issue more and less. And, uh, you know, I you want them to catch a break and, and it's hard. And then you add in that, you know, the MOVE organization from the beginning was the, the first members, the first core members were family members. And then as they were growing the cult after 85, it was about taking these three core families and having their children have children. So there's a lot of, it's relational and that is very difficult. Right. If it's family. Right. So I want you, even just in a few sentences, if you can just tell the listeners just about how, who started the group and how it got started, sort of what the premise was of it. And now take us to the present that the group still exists, even after all of this, which I'm unfortunately not surprised about, because there's some people who are just going to be adherents to the ideal of it or feel that they can't leave. So how did it all begin? It all began with a a 40-year-old guy named Vincent Leapart. Uh, He was living in a progressive neighborhood. I don't know where, where you would compare it to, like in Brooklyn, maybe. Is there like that somewhere, somewhere like that? I mean, Powelton Village in West Philadelphia is a college neighborhood. It was very diverse economically, racially in the 70s. It's post-Vietnam. And he was just living in the neighborhood and was a handyman. And 
he was had a estranged from his wife. He was, um, you know, been in the Korean War. He didn't have an education. He grew up in a neighbor, a neighboring neighborhood, and everybody was sort of just talking their thing back then. You know, ideas and the system and. He was older than the majority of those people. And he encountered, uh, and so he is a black man and he encountered a graduate student who was white, um, who was a sociology graduate student. Sociology is a repeated pattern in this story, um, in the academic world, as far as move is concerned. And they were talking about their ideas and the sociology student was like, we should write a book. And so they put this book together that has never been published, um, was considered sort of their Bible. And it started out as the Christian movement for life. So there was a Christian element to it, but it was also about like getting back in touch with nature because the system for both of them was not working for them at the time. And they just started talking to people about it. And some people were like, this makes no sense. Like this is nonsense. And then they just started looking for other people and they were particularly looking for young people. And then they started looking for single moms. So that's how it started. And they had, you know, these major confrontations, 1978, which results in the death of a police officer and eight other people who were shot from bullets from the front and the leader was not in the house during that confrontation. He was a fugitive wanted on bomb making charges. So the, as the group, this back to nature, it started, that wasn't getting enough press. And so they kept escalating the rhetoric and the confrontations in order to get press in order to be, be like, oh, wow, they're like badasses kind of thing. But the leader wasn't part of that. He was always coordinating. He was called the coordinator. That was his title. He was the coordinator. He was known as John Africa. 1985 is another confrontation. And it's obviously their most deadly confrontation because the members die and it's reported that the leader was in the house. I'm just going to state for the record, I have a lot of questions about that. The organization now. At the time of the podcast, uh, the leader, which was not publicly known, was Vincent Leapart's much younger mate, um, a female. And she had been married to John Gilbride, who was the one who ended up murdered. Um, she was top of the pyramid. She had all the money. She had all the power. She never wanted the publicity. She never wanted the fame. She just wanted the money and the power. Now, the public face of the organization with the brand, the story, the narrative, the brand, that the, that's how they refer to it as the brand, is the great nephew of Vincent Leapard. And they are working on their history version, which includes everything from Vincent Leapard was this kind, gentle animal lover and jazz drummer who played with John Coltrane and Miles Davis, which has never been documented or said before. And that this was a civil rights group that was fighting for Black rights. 
while abusing Black children, which doesn't square. And I think that the organization has been very good. I give them all the credit of they know how to market. They know what message is going to work at the time. They're very charming one-on-one. I've spoken to people like, didn't you have questions? I've spoken to people in the media who had interacted and they said, no, no, he's my friend. I've been to dinner at his house. And I said, yeah, dinner is like, that's step number one. I mean, that's what the Hare Krishnas do. But, and I think that's where ego comes in that people don't, well, I could never be, I could never be manipulated. And it's like, oh, cause, cause you're educated and you're an adult. Manipulating the media is like their first thing. Yeah. And so these people who you talk to, do you tell them about what you've uncovered and what you know? And are they open to hearing it? I have reached out to people and have had very long conversations about it. Some have not have not wanted to return my messages. I hope they will change their mind at some point. But one of them actually said to me, well, I didn't listen to the podcast because I thought it was a takedown piece. And I said, who would have told you that? And I said, I'm a total, I, I said, I say it all the time. I have an open door policy. I'll talk to anybody. And that conversation was going to be continued and it did not end up continuing for their choice. And that was disappointing. And so, you know, the podcast exists as a resource for people to look at. I won't tell anybody what to think. People with their stories are speaking in their own voice, which is why the podcast is so long because you have to give them enough time. And then you have to look at it as an, and look at it in its entirety. But uh, I, what I say to everybody is, okay, you can talk about the move organization and the bombing without looking any more into it. But knowing a 12-year-old girl was raped on the orders of the leader and forced to give birth to five children while not being educated and not being allowed to see a doctor, you can't, I don't care what you say, there's no justification for that. And she's not the only one. Mm, right. You know, you also mentioned, and before we we finish up, but you mentioned that they were doing outreach, I hate to call it that, but outreach to single moms. So I'm only, I, I can only imagine how women were treated in this organization. This is not to say men were treated a lot better, but how was it for women? Well, it depended whether you had power or not. So some women had power and some did not. Some were, I guess you could liken them to handmaids where they were just, your job is to make children soldiers for the revolution. But the leader, the female leader, didn't have a child until she was 48 years old. And so like in any group like this, you're trying, if you don't want to rise through the ranks, you're going to be on the bottom. So you're going to do what you have to do to get as close to the top because that's where you're going to be safest, possibly, or more privileges. But there was violence against men by women. John Gilbride was a victim of domestic violence and cult violence. Violence between genders was encouraged. And also the female leader, which was carried from the original leader, there was a misogynistic lens on everything. So men were allowed to work. Women had the children. 
But ultimately, the men were dominated by the female leaders. So then they were emasculated that way, if you want to look at it as, you know, in gender terms. Homosexuality was considered the ultimate sin because ultimate, because they would justify that you can't create life with homosexuality. And so there was a lot of, well, if you don't do this, then you're gay. And if you're gay, then you know what's going to happen. You'll be put out, you'll be cycled, you know, you're an abomination. So the, you know, it's, it's more than homophobia. And when you look at the, just the number of people in a group, like if you look at statistically, you know, not everyone's going to be heterosexual. So they're going to live with that additional fear. Mm. When you talk about this, and then I know we need to finish up, but when you talk about this and I, and I see it a lot, the, the irony is so palpable of something you alluded to before that there is this need to band together because of society and society's views and feeling ostracized and feeling judged and labeled. And then within the confines of the group, you're ostracized, you're judged, you're labeled. And it is just fascinating to not have that insight, but to be so sure that you needed to provide this somehow as a safe haven, but you're recreating the same thing. You know, a lot of people want to believe that cult leaders start out start off with good intentions. I've seen people make those statements about Jim Jones. You know, he was trying to create this racial utopia. You know, 80% of his victims were Black. He targeted Black people and promised them something and then enslaved them to his beliefs and then sacrificed them. So, you know, and I've had conversations with people that are like, oh, you know, they they look at this story and they think, well, this is uh, this is a, a a deception on the left, right? And I'm like, well, I wouldn't categorize any group like this as leftist, and their politics is actually authoritarian. But yes, the people who sort of gravitated to support them because that's the messaging they were they knew that they could get that support if they messaged to that group. But this is. It doesn't matter your race, gender, your ethnicity, your ideology, groups form. I liken it to, without using like cult terminology, because I don't, I'm not an expert, I, I, I use a lot of metaphors. And so my metaphor is you have sheep gather in a field and they're all like, I'm a sheep. I have, it's rough being a sheep. I'm a sheep. Like, let's, maybe we can be sheep, you know, be together. There's always going to be a predator who sees a gathering of people that they can infiltrate and manipulate. And they will then pretend that they are also a sheep. And they're infiltrating because they want power. They don't have your belief. They don't have your intention. They've realized that they found a group of people that they can exploit and manipulate, either based on their anger, their financial situation, their empathy, their politics, their beliefs. and that predator did a full analysis of that group before they infiltrated. And that can happen on the left, the right, in the middle. It can happen, you know, on the spectrum of benign to malignant. But everybody wants to make it like, oh, that's so QAnon or, oh, that's so this, you know, that's so communist, that's so socialist. And it's like, you, are, it's, I'm all, now whatever I look at, I look at where, who has the power and why. 
Yes, yes, yes. Because it is all about that. And sometimes people will say, how do you define a cult? And I have lots of ways of defining a cult, but really fundamentally, it's the nature of the power differential between the leader and the followers. And uh, will always be based in that at its core. And then the other things are kind of cultic icing around this cake. And ultimately, I think too, when people talk about cults, like they think about it as like a belief or it's an emotional manipulation. But I think it's also important to look at, especially with like the case of Larry Ray and also with um, Keith Ranieri and Nexium, is the criminality. And that's under the law. I mean, we are all living under the law. And these individuals use their cult beliefs to be above the law, that they are outside the system when ultimately we are all beholden to the system, whether it is perfect or not, which it's not. And I think that's what I want people to focus on with MOVE in particular is these allegations from the children, the documentation all the way leading up, that's just not cultic abuse. That's criminal child abuse. Crimes need to be defined as crimes. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And But it is true. Yeah, cults can hide behind a lot. And I mean, even, you know, Scientology does when people bring it up on charges, it cries religious persecution, which just shows that it shouldn't still be getting that designation because it's going to be using and abusing that to get away with what it gets away with. I want people to know where to find you, where to find the podcast. And so go for it. Tell everyone about what, what you're doing out there. So the podcast is Murder at Ryan's Run. It was intentionally titled that so that the cult wouldn't know we were launching. It is two seasons. The first one is about child abuse and the unsolved murder of an ex-member. And the second season is more about the deep dive into the history and some exclusive reporting on a particular missing child. And so you can find us at murderatryansrun.com and we're all on social at Murder at Ryan's Run. And, you know, I say to everybody who's listening, like, please reach out. Like, if you have information about any of the things you're hearing on the podcast, or if you have questions, you know, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, it's been the hardest project of my life, but I don't regret it for a second. And all I want is that the victims live a happy life and that there are no more victims and that people can learn from this without thinking that victims coming forward or trying to attack somebody else. They're just trying to tell their story. Right. Yes. Enough with blaming the victims over and over again. And for my colleagues in the media, fact check. And if they're not going to fact check, their organizations should fact check. Well said. Very important. Very, very important. Thank you, Rachel. It was really, really an important discussion. And that whole population of people who didn't survive and people who did survive, who were victimized, are in good hands. Their memories and their lives are in good hands with you. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks, Rachel. thing before you go. I am so happy 
that you had a chance to hear from Beth McNamara. I think it is an incredible thing when someone digs their heels in the way she has and the way she does and will continue to do. It's in certain people's nature to have something just get under their skin and they can no longer ignore it and realize they need to do something. Whatever is sort of within their wheelhouse, whatever is within their talents, their skills, their power to do. And with Beth, it is her writing, it's her researching, it's her tenacity about the subject that is her superpower. Thank goodness she cared to this degree and cares to this degree. I uh, am in awe of so many people out there who really will not take no for an answer when they are stonewalled, when they're kept from the information, when they're intimidated. They just keep going with it. And sometimes just out of their own curiosity or the need to get to some sort of conclusion, but also sometimes to honor the people who have been harmed, who they found out about along the way. And I think in Beth's case, to honor the children, especially, who had remained powerless and voiceless until now. There is something quite amazing when we talk about the idea that children who died and some of whom were abducted were called revolutionary martyrs. Well, that's quite a term, isn't it? Revolutionary martyrs. What does that mean even? I hear that it means that a group that's calling these children revolutionary martyrs is a group that wants to make it seem like what happened to those children elevated their status in people's eyes. And so then somehow all is forgiven. You know, the ends justify the means. And so now they have this title, revolutionary martyr, which we've now bestowed upon them. And so maybe then we can get away with this. It's very much like the term suicide bomber. I don't know how much suicide is really a part of it because so many people are indoctrinated into that way of thinking. So are they doing it of their own free will? Are they doing it of their own free mind? Is it a suicide? Is it, though, something coerced, something forced, something encouraged, something that you're taught is going to make you special, that is going to bring honor to you, to your family? So I wonder how many times people are given these designations just to make an organization that put them in this situation mm, be given kind of permission for it, whitewash it in some way. It goes to so much of what we talk about, about language being used to manipulate. If they really wanted to honor these children, as opposed to calling them revolutionary martyrs, they could call them victims. They could call them abused. They could call them neglected. They could call it as it really was and as it really is. The other part that is truly ironic about calling children anything is that they're not in a position to have consented. One would assume that if someone goes after potentially becoming a martyr, they're making that choice. A child cannot consent. A child cannot make that choice. So 
it's wrong all around. If you find that a situation that someone is in is not matching how it's being talked about, not matching the language that's being used, then you're going to take a moment, I hope, especially after listening to podcast episodes like this, and wonder why it is that they need to reframe this in such positive terms. Why are they needing to really coerce people into thinking that everything is fine and in fact, good? It's like the people in cultic groups who will say, as we've talked about, that they didn't know they were being abused because a lot of the time it's just not called what it is. And so we want to be honest here. These children deserve for us to be honest. They suffered at the hands of other people and they didn't have a choice. And they were hurt and or killed. And that's illegal. It's immoral. And it should be seen as such, plain and clear. What Beth does is she is able to synthesize this information to get us to these points of being very clear. I think about all of the word salad that a lot of us have heard from cult leaders where we just wonder, wait, what was the point? And what, what did they say? But when it comes to someone needing to take responsibility for what they've done to someone else and someone needing to take responsibility for what they've done to a child, we need to get to the point. So what happened here was wrong. And what happens all over the world in groups like this is wrong. And we wish that we could protect children from it. But part of the reason that I do this podcast is to help future generations if I can. Thank you so much to Beth. Thank you so much to all of you out there who are doing what you can do in big ways and in small ways that all make a difference. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash Indoctrination.